We finally arrived here in the leafy West London suburb of Harlington after a long journey. It is quiet, but if you listen closely, you can hear birds chirping and planes taking off from Heathrow Airport. To my right, there's a car park, and that holds the first clues as to what's here. I can see a couple of pimped up Range Rovers, and high in Mercs, you and me can only dream of driving. Next to that is the pitches. Carpet looking, pristine football pitches. This is QPR's training ground, a strange place where classical meets contemporary. As I look up right in front of me now, I can see a tower on a brick pavilion. It's got this strange kind of railway clock on it. Below that, there's a tunnel covered in decals of QPR legends soaked in glory from down the years. The modern bit is what I can see now. As I'm walking to my left, I can see a couple of luxury port cabins, housing state-of-the-art gyms, and more big screen monitors than your local on game day. So why QPR? Why is it the perfect place to start our story? Well, we think it's the perfect mix of old and new. The training ground seems to be lost in translation. Somewhere between old school, rough, long ball football to the artful, beautiful modern game that we now watch. A game that started out simple. Just the pitch, the players, a ball, some changing rooms, and then over years, as the game adapted, more and more extras got bolted on. A bit like the portal cabins we can see here. This podcast is about the development of football's backstage, the bit you don't see, the sports science, the analysis, the fitness work, the backroom staff that clubs are using to get a cutting edge in today's game. This is The Boot Room. We've chosen QPR as our starting point, not only because the building perfectly illustrates the transition between old school and new school football, but also because QPR were one of the first teams to accidentally pioneer and now integral part of every backroom staff. A 1988 BBC documentary shows how QPR were looking for ways to gain football advantage against their opponents. One highly controversial answer is to use a sports psychologist. As an experiment, QED has offered him just that. John Sire has been recruited for a period of six weeks. John Sire's first task is to make the players actively want what he has to offer. Mental training is really using your minds to improve your performance. Our minds always affect our performance anyway. That's why some days you play brilliant, and some days, even though you're equally fit, there's something going on inside that means that you play less well. And mental training is really a set of exercises which you can do to ensure that you do use your mind positively to improve your performance. This strange new method wasn't only happening in West London, it was also ongoing in North London at Spurs. We spoke to an ex-player who gave his first-hand account of exactly what taking that leap of faith felt like. I'm sat down with sports psychologists and we are going through mental envisioning. Sitting, quiet room, just the two of us. We are envisioning my game, how I perform my game. Looking into my particular game, looking maybe at a specific opponent. At the time, this brought a lot of giggling from the younger group of players in Tottenham's first team, right? Because what the hell? And other such phrases that we can't say. And so you've got you've got this sort of attitude. But now, 
dude, you can't go away from that stuff. That stuff is part and parcel. It's core of your performance. That was the voice of a man who knows all too well about old school and new school. He was a footballing legend, but to label him just as that would be an insult. I'll let him introduce himself. I am Gary O'Reilly. Um, I am a freelance sports broadcaster here in New York City. We have a science sports podcast called Playing With Science, which allows us to involve, engage all of the science, as well as some really incredible athletes, world champions, Olympic champions. As for me and mine in the days gone by, I started my career at Tottenham. Um, made my debut at 19. I moved to Brighton, Hove Albion. Uh, I then moved to Crystal Palace and then ended my career at Brighton, Hove Albion once again, 14 years after having started. Yeah, have boots, will travel. When you get the chance to speak to such a well-decorated football brain, you don't waste your time. I started by asking Gary what rest of recovery looked like for him at the beginning of his career. <laughs> Rest and recovery. That term hadn't been invented. <laughs> I, I think you kind of worked out that if you were working hard, you needed to rest. There were no modern aids to recovery. Uh, so they worked out that if you ate right, you wouldn't get fat. Uh, if you ate right, you had more energy and better energy. Um if you're hydrated, that was something that wasn't particularly forced onto athletes, at, you know, during the 80s. But that's where we were. Uh, the sort of things that were there in terms of recovery, you would get massages if you wanted to go out of your way to organise those yourself. So eat right, sleep right and get the occasional massage. Sounds like the welfare routine for any healthy person today, not that of a professional athlete. So, what about analysis? There must have been more back in the day. Yeah, by the coaches on the side of the field, all done with the eyes. Hmm. Um, are you running as far as today as you did in the last game? Are those runs in there? There were, there were players who would have guys spotters in the crowd. And they would tick certain boxes. They would be giving a list of things and they would tick them every time they saw that player do that thing. So, in the early 90s and late 80s, it was beginning. But what's it like now? I'm Luke Wright. I'm the performance analyst at Bristol City Women's. We use software called Sports Code. And from that, you can create templates that, that can you can select what you want to measure. Um, so I was forward passes, sideward passes, backwards passes. They're all quite easy to, to measure because they are what they are. Um, with things like penetrative, it's we've we've created the system ourselves, which is like a point system. Um, so we work off that. Last season, the manager actually used some statistics to, to influence team selection. So if a player has been passing backwards or in a specific third or their passes haven't been penetrative enough, they could use that as part of why they've dropped the player. Or, or, on the other hand, or why they've selected a player. Although 30 years ago, Luke's job would have seemed very strange. Most clubs nowadays have analysts, sports psychologists, nutritionalists, strength and conditioning coaches. Liverpool even employed a throwing coach for the 2018-2019 season. But trying to get the cutting edge over your rivals is not a new thing. Our next story takes place in 1937, 
It's a story between a man, a wolf, and a monkey. But no, it's not a plot to a new Disney film. In 1937, Major Frank Buckley put his players through a systematic doping program. The manager was searching for the latest advances in what today would be called sports science. For his players, this meant bad news. They were regularly injected with small amounts of monkey glands. Buckley first used himself as a test monkey, ironically. After having many doubts, he quickly began to feel the results. Reports say that players felt an increase in strength, stamina and recovery rate. Other teams picked up on the trend and the 1939 FA Cup final was even named the Monkey Gland final because Portsmouth had cotton onto the new trend. Any advantage in football makes a difference, even if it's just a means to get to the unparalleled powers of the placebo effect. But a question still remains. How do you get a cutting edge in a world where every club seems to have every basis covered, from food to fitness to psychology? Well, the answer could be in the bedroom. Um, hi, my name is Anna West. Uh, I am the founder of Sleep to Perform. The importance of high quality sleep and rest is basically the precondition for any athletes to be able to um, perform because the foundations for your performance and the ability to basically um, be able to develop performance comes through um, a good night's sleep. We all know that sleep has a huge impact on how we feel, our mood, our ability to judge. Um, but if you put it into a performance perspective and you look at an athlete, it, it can be quite detrimental that you're not sleeping well because it has a lot of impact just on the emotional level that you're not ready, that you're you know, the speed of your decision making goes down and so forth, but it also has a huge impact on your physiology. So if you don't sleep um, or if you don't have high quality sleep, the way that you produce the growth hormone that should basically rebuild the muscles after you've been training will be lower and the risk of injury will be higher. So, so the lack of sleep directly is correlated with higher injury rates more illness, um, slower speed and so forth. But if you flip the perspective around, it's basically the same. So if you sleep well, you can actually use it directly to optimize performance. Anna has worked at various football clubs, such as Brentford, and worked with some of the world's top athletes. But I was curious to find out, what would a good sleep pattern look like for the regular person? Well, it's it's very individual what, you know, what, and you know, um, a high quality rhythm would mean for for you versus me. But what what is aligned for everyone is that it's quite um, important that you maintain a consistent rhythm, meaning that you have fixed bedtimes and awake times, that you are aware of what you do prior to going to bed. Because when we go to bed, it's often something that we don't reflect very much about. We just do it. Um, and without the intention of kind of compromising our sleep, we do a lot of things that that basically does that. Um, so getting a rhythm into place and basically investing in that rhythm, because the what we tend to do is do the shortcut, like we stay up longer, not because we intentionally mean to harm ourselves, but we do that. So basically having a rhythm will help us because as long as our body knows what to do when, the quality of the sleep will go up. And then the sleep hygiene factor, which sounds extremely unsexy to put into words, but 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 basically sleep hygiene is extremely important because if you don't if you don't factor those 
those impactors in, it will compromise your sleep. Let's say you sleep in a room that's really warm. You might not see it as a direct hinder, but you will start to toss and turn in your sleep. And by that, basically compromising the quality of your sleep because you break down the sleep cycles that you have throughout the night. Um, if you have a lot of noise in your room, if you have a lot of light coming in, and even more important, if you haven't emptied your head before you try to fall asleep, you will prolong the time needed to fall asleep. And when you take longer time to fall asleep, you don't get as much quality into your sleep. So we've gone from primitive potions to conditioned emotions. Watch this space as football continues to evolve as we bring you more stories of the weird and wonderful behind the scenes of football.